This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, I'm Mike Campbell, artistic director and founder of Huff, the Halifax Urban Folk Festival. And this is HuffCast, a limited-run podcast showcasing the best and brightest artists coming to Huff this year. Please join me as I chat with artists performing this year's 10th anniversary edition. My guest today is one of the most respected legends in rock and roll, and Huff's only repeat performer in its 10-year history. He's played in The Nuns, The True Believers, and Rank and File. A record store nerd turned rock star with 16 solo albums to his credit, we're talking to Alejandro Escovedo. Hello. Alejandro. Yeah. It's Mike Campbell. Oh, hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good, bud. And where are we? Where do we find you today? You find me in uh, Driftwood, Texas. Oh, Driftwood. For some, reason yeah. I, for some reason, I thought it was Deadwood. Driftwood. No, no, Driftwood. Um, you remember the, uh, the Salt Lake Barbecue? Yeah. Yeah, that's where, oh. that's where I live. Handy. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. Um, why don't you talk? Uh, why don't we just start at the beginning? Uh, you know, t- tell me about your early life and you know your family's move from Mexico to Texas. Uh, that's a long story. I'm <laughs> glad we have time. <laughs> uh, I, so I was born in San Antonio, Texas, January tenth, nineteen fifty-one. I was born of my mother and father. My father is named Pedro Barrera Escovedo. He came from Saltillo in the state of Coahuila, northern Mexico. Hmm. My mother was uh, Cleotilda Renteria Escovedo. She was from San Marcos, Texas. Uh, my father was raised by his grandmother because his mother and father had left them behind when they went north to find work in Texas. This, uh, my father was also born in 1907, you know, mm. he's no longer with us, but he lived to be 97 years old. Whoa. So anyway, my dad, my dad was raised by his grandmother. Uh, when he reached the age of 12, he hopped a train headed for, uh, the North into, uh, San Antonio. He made his way to San Antonio at 12, found relatives there who told him his parents were in Luling, Texas. They were picking watermelons. Uh, he was then reunited with his mother, his father, and his sister, but his father was a very violent, hard-drinking, mean, vicious man who was violent towards my dad, and my dad ran away again at the age of 16, went west, and that began his journey. You know, uh, He began his life really uh, in, in uh, California. He met my mom in Oakland, California. They got married. They moved to San Antonio, and uh, my mother had a baby who died uh, shortly after birth, and then she had me. And so my father had already had seven children previous to meeting my mom, and those are my older brothers, Pete and Coco Escovedo, and, you know, Sheila E.'s dad, and and Bobby and Tommy, and all my, my sisters and brothers that were older. Uh, I was the first of five children for my mom. And uh, in 1957 and 58, my parents told us we were going on a vacation to California. 
Uh, we'd never been on a vacation before, <laughs> so we were very excited. And because there were so many kids around, they just said to pack lightly. <laughs> and there was really no reason to pack anything. We're going to California, you know? Right. And so uh, got to California in 1957 or 58, it was. And uh, the world was a different, very, very different world there, you know? Uh, suddenly the world seemed to be in technicolor, you know? Yeah. Uh, there was Disneyland, the Pacific Ocean, orange groves, lemon groves, avocado orchards, flowers everywhere. It was the land of uh, golden opportunity, movie stars and whatnot. And uh, one day my father shook hands with a man outside of the home in which we were staying in Orange, California. And uh, we suddenly owned a home in, in California, in Orange. And we never returned to Texas to fetch our things. We left behind everything. Uh, we left behind uh, dogs, uh, pets, clothes, memories, family, a lot of family, um, horse. Uh, you know, that, so everything was left behind. And it was kind of traumatic for me, especially. I was the oldest of those kids. And right. my sister, Dolly, uh, also, you know. And so, uh, you know. I make jokes when I introduce this story because I'm writing a book now. So uh. I'm going to retell this story, but, um, you know, uh, there, there was a, a sense that we were suddenly placed in a world and a culture that was really, really different. San Antonio is like 75% Mexican. Yeah. And I was surrounded by nothing but family. So at first California seemed very exciting, but as I grew older, I sense that I was very much out of place. And, uh, you know, I tell people this, and it's true, that in San Antonio, I was surrounded by family and love and, and compassion and warmth and, and uh, great food and parties and gatherings and picnics and going to the river and swimming and my dog and my horse. And then suddenly we were cast in California. And as I grew up, you know, I tell people, I, go, I was never called a beaner until I moved to California. Mm. I, I was never called a wetback until I moved to California. I was never felt like I was and did not belong until we moved to California. So that obviously uh, struck a deep, deep sentiment or chord inside me, uh, which later came out in my songs, you know? Yeah. Um, but so, the, so I grew up in, in, Southern California and Huntington Beach, actually, we ended up moving to, I became a surfer, probably the only Mexican surfer <laughs> in the, uh, on the planet at the time. And um, that was really rough, you know, it was, it was a hard thing. And then I fell in love with rock and roll. And that created even more uh, uh, complexity because of the way that I tried to draw. I tried to look like Keith Richards, you know. And uh, being a Chicano looking like Keith Richards was not a very attractive thing. You know? So um, it was a struggle. But that's where I grew up in Orange County and then um, started a band in, in, in uh, uh, San Francisco with my friend Jeff. We were really trying to make a movie. We didn't want to be a band. I wasn't a musician. Um, and since we thought we looked so cool and we love the Stooges, of course, and all that stuff, that it was loosely based on that kind of music, 
Um, and since we couldn't play, we thought, well, we'll be great in the movie because we can't play. And uh, um, we look so great, we thought, you know. <laughs> and uh, I learned a couple chords, and that began The Nuns. That was The Nuns. Right. And the only, the only uh, real claim to fame for The Nuns was that not only were we one of the first two punk rock bands in San Francisco, but we opened up for the last Sex Pistols show at Winterland, along with the Avengers, you know. Um, and then I moved to New York City with the nuns. We went to New York and played, you know, it was 1978. So we played all these great clubs, CBGBs, Hurrahs, uh, you know, uh, Max's, uh, all those great clubs. My father's place in Long Island. All these wonderful clubs. And it was a great scene. It was still old New York, so it was real funky and dangerous and drugs and whatnot, crime. And, uh, you know, uh, it was pretty heady, you know. I mean, it was heady stuff because uh, the nuns were very well accepted in New York. A lot of our friends were in the Ramones and Blondie and all those bands. So um, one night uh, we went to go see the Heartbreakers at Max's, and we sat at a table with Andy Warhol Francesco Scavullo and uh, Blondie and George Clinton and watch the Heartbreakers. That was our introduction to New York. Yeah. That's a- <laughs> so, that was, uh, so then uh, the nuns went back to San Francisco. I stayed in New York and played with Judy Nylon. And Judy was really one of the most influential musicians that I ever played with. She was more than a musician. She was uh, like a performance artist. And uh, we, we, she introduced me to the world of uh, the art world, the art rock world in a way. So, you know, in her band were like members of the Bush Tetras, myself, uh, the Ray Beats, uh, all these great, great musicians that were really different, you know, and unique. And uh, I played with her for a couple of years, a few years. And then uh, we uh, started Rank and File again with Chip Kinman and Kevin Foley and a a bass player by the name of Barry Scratchy Myers, who was the Clash DJ when they would tour. And he was our bass player. So we toured, uh, we we went on a tour on the night that Ronald Reagan was elected president. We had a seven week long tour with seven shows in those seven weeks. And Austin was one of those places. Uh And we fell in love with Austin. And we, uh, 1980 or 81, we moved to Austin. And I've been here ever since. And you're very, I mean, seriously associated with Austin. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I lived here since then. And when, when Rank and File broke up and the brothers went to L.A., I stayed in, 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 uh, in Austin and began the True Believers with my brother Javier and John D. Graham. Mm. And, you know, so that was the beginning of the Believers. And then when the Believers crashed and burned i uh i stayed and began reluctantly began my solo career i did not want a solo career i wanted to be in a band right but uh but that began like i started with this kind of uh improvisational group called the orchestra and what it was was i i I would call like all the best jazz players latin players rock players in the city and just say look we have a gig at, uh, you know, La Zona Rosa and uh, the gigs at 10. And whoever showed up, we would just start 
And I would just start improvising little riffs and stuff. And that kind of began my writing career for my solo stuff. You know, that's how it began. But I had a great band. It would range anywhere from five to 15 pieces, you know, <laughs> best players in town. And we began, that's when we began that Sunday night closing gig at La Zona uh, for South by Southwest. Mm-hmm. And I would invite all my friends, you know, everyone from David Byrne to R.E.M., uh, you know, Hal Gelb, uh, all, all these cool players, you know. I think, um, I mean, when I first started coming to South by, which was not that long ago, it's only like five or six years ago, I think he was still doing the... South by closing night, the Sunday night thing at the Continental Club at that point. Yeah. So that was this, that was just an extension of the same thing. It was. Uh, we had stayed at La Zona Rosa for many years, and then um, we had an incident with Tom Waits, uh, where uh, the the guy who brought Tom Waits to uh, Austin for a gig, which really did. Um, got uh, beat up by the bouncers at La Zona Rosa, so we left and went to Cottonell Club. Whoa. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> wow. That doesn't look good on the bouncer, does it? No, no. Mm. No, no. I loved Austin when I got there, and it, like I said, it was just more recently, but, you know, for someone like yourself who was there, like, ages and ages and ages ago, you know, what's what's going on in Austin these days must be, you know, sort of, well, maybe not bittersweet. I think most musicians are upset by it just simply because it's becoming such a popular place. Musicians can't afford to live there anymore. Yeah, it's become gentrified to the point of becoming, I mean, it looks like a small Orange County, L.A. kind of vibe, you know. Mm. There's more Maseratis and Bentleys and Teslas in Austin than probably Rodeo Drive, it seems like, you know? Mm. So what was Austin uh, has changed dramatically. You know, uh, Chuck Prophet and I wrote a song called The Bottom of the World. Yeah. It kind of start, it starts out with this line, you know, Austin's changed, it's true. Show me what hasn't, you know? Um, and it has changed to the point that it's sometimes unrecognizable, you know? Yeah. Uh, they tore down all the beautiful buildings. Instead of restoring the buildings, they just tore them down. It's full of condos and, you know, the skyline is nothing like what it was like. The, right. the, the tallest building when I got here was probably five or six stories, maybe. Yeah. And now there's mega buildings everywhere. So it's a very different place. I still love, you know, my love is for Texas more than it is for any particular city. I just love Texas, you know. So that's the vibe that I go for. And, and living out here in the country now, uh, we live on 23 acres, you know, so uh, there's cows around and nothing but live oaks. And all I can see, my vista is nothing but trees and pastures. So, you know, that's more like what I, I was always uh, in love with anyway, you know. Yeah. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a cowboy, you know. So it's nice to... Uh, sit back and watch the cowboys do the actual work, but it's it's beautiful, you know. <laughs> now, when you were up here last time, after I think it might have been the night after your show, we wound up at uh, at my house in the garage, and you were on beautiful. The, and you were, was a lovely party, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were on the couch talking to a bunch of my record rep friends, and then I wandered yeah. over to see what was happening, and you basically 
geeking out like every single one of us had worked in a record store at one point. And I didn't, at that, up until then, I don't think I realized that you worked in record stores too. Oh, yeah. I worked at Waterloo for at least five years and, and always worked in libraries. You know, I worked in libraries when I was a kid in Orange County. I used to uh, work at uh, UCI. I worked at his library and Golden West College. I worked at a library and then I worked at a library. That was my first job in Austin. And then I started working in record stores again, you know. So record stores, you know, for all of us who love rock and roll and love records, love music, record stores are the sanctuary, you know. So, uh, I, you know, it, it's a classic story. I, I There was a record store on Main Street in Huntington Beach, and that's the guy who turned me on to more music that I listen to now than anyone ever has, you know. Um, he really opened the doors, you know. He would buy me, uh, not buy me, but order me import copies of Mata Hoople's first records and, you know, all of the enemy and, and Melody Makers and stuff. So right. record stores are extremely uh, important educational tool, you know. And the great thing about Waterloo was they encouraged that. So, uh, you know, you could you could check out records and take them home for a week and, and listen to them so you knew what you were talking about when someone asked for a... Sun Ra record or a, uh, you know, Phala record or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Waterloo's still there, of course. And they're still doing... Yeah, it is. And they're still doing stuff, uh, you know, the parking lot shows at South By. Somebody just bought me a Waterloo Records hat, actually. I wear it all the time. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a great store. And also, speaking of South By, in Austin... Um, Pretty much every year we go down. It's the it's you know the weekend a, uh, ahead of when the music starts, and um, for whatever reason, I think the last two or three years Chuck Prophet's been playing the Continental Club, uh, so I yeah. get so I get to see Chuck all the time, and I have to give you full credit for introducing me to Chuck Prophet because when you were here, you asked me if I'd you know been listened to Chuck, and I really didn't know that much about him. And I took that to heart and uh, immediately started listening to everything I could get my hands on and then managed to convince him to come up to Halifax to play Huff. So I thank you for that. Oh, cool. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I totally thank you yeah, for that. He's a good boy, Chuck. Yeah, yeah well, uh, um, I was talking to Chuck. Well, you know Chuck. He's got that Chuck Prophet sardonic sense of humor. And uh, yeah. when I was telling him about, uh, well, I told him that, you know, you'd sort of introduce me to stuff. And then uh, I was just rhyming off the names of the people that had, that had played the festival. And uh, I, I just, you know, I was just like rhyming them off. And I got to Dwight Twilley and I was on to the next name. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. You had Dwight Twilley here? And I said, yeah. I said, well, screw Escovedo. I mean, you got Dwight Twilley here. That's a serious thing, right? <laughs> but you guys worked together. You wrote, uh, wrote uh, at least well, one, we wrote three one record together. together. Yeah. Yeah, three records we worked on. It was a uh, Real Animal was the first one, and that was the uh, kind of the first of the, uh, uh, the trilogy with Tony Visconti. Mm. Uh, he produced that record and we wrote a record based around my, uh, you know, the nuns and, and leading up to rank and file. So it was all about being in bands, my band at that time, you know, we wrote a story about it. We kind of wrote a storyboard about how we 
that's how we approached the record was actually kind of storyboarded the whole thing. Hmm. And it was fun to work on. We did it here in Texas and in uh, San Francisco. And then we went out to Kentucky to record with Tony. He liked the studio in Lexington, Kentucky. St. Clair, it was called. It was beautiful. It was on a horse farm. And we recorded out there for about a month, I think. And then uh, the second album was Street Songs of Love. And uh, that was another one with Tony we did out there in Kentucky. And then the third one was Big Station, which we did here in Austin mm -hmm. at Jimmy, Jimino's studio. Yeah. Well, seeing as how you're such a student of rock and roll and you like classic stuff, uh, you know, I love the fact that you bring up Mott the Hoople of all things, because that's one of my favorite bands. And I had every record they ever made yeah. right from the get go, be long before they ever got famous. Right. But for you to be working with, you know, David Bowie's producer must have been a big kick. That was an amazing kick. And, you know, we had Ian sing on that record. Ian Hunter sang on, ah, on that album. God, I yeah. love him. So, and, you know, uh, I just got a call from Ian, actually, because I'm going to open up uh, the Austin show and the Dallas show for him, you know, maybe oh. a couple others. Oh. So I'm excited, you know. I, I, I used to follow Mott. I was a stalker, you know, uh, of Mott. You know, I would follow them everywhere and just love that band. They meant so much. And actually the true believers were loosely based on kind of a Southwestern version of Mott the Hoople. You know, that's what we want. That's what we were striving for. I'm not saying we reached that. But, <laughs> yeah. Well, pretty nice. To, I mean, awesome thing to strive for. Uh, and speaking, yeah. of, and speaking of Ian Hunt, I mean, I love Ian Hunter. I've been trying to get him to Halifax for years and it just can't quite convince him. Of course, I can't get to him personally either, but I know his agent, Frank Riley, has tried for me, but it just seems tough. And for a guy who's, you know, he's another guy, another good reason to look up to him, I suppose, is <clears throat> for somebody his age, you know, he's, he's putting out some of the best music of his career at this point, and it seems like, you know, he's, he's got an album a year coming out or something. It's, it's astonishing he's to unbelievable. me. unbelievable. Yeah. He's 80 years old. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Well, I put stuff on and I play stuff for people every once in a while. They have no clue who Mott the Hoople is, much less Ian Hunter. And, you know, listen to the voice. Yeah. And uh, when I point out how old he is, like, people just cannot believe that voice is still coming out of it. And it's yeah. astonishing. I don't know how he does it. I really don't. And, you know, he's uh, he's got the spirit of rock and roll, unlike, you know, most kids don't have that kind of spirit that he does, you know. And, mm. uh, He's just such a wonderful songwriter. I've always thought that his songwriting was uh, the highest quality, and uh, he, he was a great, great mentor, you know, and such a great guy. You know, I just love being around him. So it's gonna, it's a real honor and a treat to play. You know, because I would like yourself. I was one of those guys who was in the front row. You know, every mm. Mott show. You know, so I saw them when they first came to L.A. And, uh, you know, probably saw them until the very last show they did there. You know? Yeah. So, and yeah. he also, I mean, Ian, he also was uh, part of the album that was recorded of your songs to, to uh, you know, for the benefit of trying to take care of your medical bills and your living expenses um, when you had hepatitis C. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's so many people involved in that record, you know, Steve Earle, Lucinda Williams, John Cale, for God's sakes, Jennifer Warren, Ian Hunter, the Jayhawks, Sunvolt. Um, yeah. It must have been, I mean, obviously it sucked to 
to have Hep C, but, you know, to have your friends rally around you like that to help you continue. It was, uh, it was extremely humbling, you know, because, you know, I was really, really sick, man. And, and, uh, you know, the medicine was really doing its damage on me. And I, I really didn't feel like uh, I was going to get much further with it, you know? Mm. So I was in a really bad place. And then I remember the first two songs that came in from that benefit record were Sean Kale's uh, She Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Mm-hmm. And then Ian Hunter's uh, One More Time. And needless to say, uh, you know, when you're when you're that ill, that you're emotionally pretty uh, vulnerable, and I just cried like a baby when I heard these songs. I mean, especially Ian's, because you know I lo- I've always loved Kale, and he's definitely been part of what I've tried to construct musically. You know, he's been part of the template, but Ian was always so, you know, real, and 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 the songs that he wrote always seemed to speak to us. You know, like. We were part of that that whole thing, and and when I heard him sing my song, in the way that I had tried to, you know, the song in the first place was a rip off of a Matahupa song, <laughs> and then he sings it, and then he sings it back to me, uh. and it was unbelievable, you know. Needless to say, and I'll tell you another little sidelight story about Ian Hunter. So when I was making Real Animal, Chuck and I had written all the songs, and. One of those classic A and R moves where they say, "Oh, we don't hear any songs," and we had all the songs that ended up on the record, you know. Mm. And originally, Glenn Johns was going to produce that record, oh. right? But Chuck and I spent some time out in France with Glenn Johns, and it didn't work out. So we were looking for a producer. They were telling us we didn't have any songs. So I called up Ian and I said, "Man, you know." EMI says we don't have the songs and, and I, could you just listen to what I, he goes, come on out here, come out here and, and stay with Trudy and I for a little bit and, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what you got, you know. So I went out and stayed with him for about a week, maybe two weeks and uh, I have a cassette actually somewhere uh, that uh, is him singing all of those songs back to me with uh, recommendations on how to sing them, how to maybe place a chord, a little arrangement ideas and shit. And uh, it was really, really unbelievable. And uh, and in the end, you know, he just told me, he said, don't let anybody, uh, don't ever let anyone try to fuck with your music like that, you know, and, and just own the fuck off. You know? <laughs> and, and so we did. And then we got, uh, that's when Tony came into the picture also, you know. Yeah. So, Visconti, Visconti and Ian Hunter were very uh, prominent on that record. That's such a trip for me, you know, hearing yeah. you tell these stories and uh, understanding where you come from with all that. You know, it's, it's get up and look in the mirror and go, yeah, you know, I used to listen to this stuff and now I'm now I'm friends with these guys. That's a that's well, very, know, very heavy thing. Well, you know, and it's always this thing where... I'm always the fanboy, you know. In fact, on that cassette, all you hear me saying is, wow, you know, <laughs> cool, and wow, you know. I'm just in awe of him, you know. And so John Cale tried to tell me, he goes, you got to stop, you know, treating 
me and other people like that. You, know, you have to you have to think of yourself as a peer, but there's no way that I would think of myself in that manner with these people. You know, I'm still a fanboy when it comes to it all. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons why you're as good as you are, as far as I'm concerned. Um, another, well, true. And people are asking me about it. I said, well, you know, I still think he's like the best dressed man in rock and roll. He's sharp. <laughs> you know, I think Joe Jackson named his album after that guy. <laughs> uh, and I was just reading before I knew I was going to talk to you. And, you know, you opened up the conversation saying that, you know, try not to you know, listen to too much news and stuff because it's so politically weird in the U.S. of A. these days. Um, uh, but reading about you finding out that your song Cast the Nets was on uh, uh, George Bush's... Uh, uh, it not, was not George Bush, the other Bush, <laughs> the other two, yeah. Junior, on, on his uh, on his iPod, and then you refused to play it until he was either got rid of it or was yeah. out of office. Is that a real thing? <laughs> That was our little protest, yeah. We decided, you know, and we could, yeah, like in concert, we would say, you know, we usually play Castanet too, but we won't. And, uh, you know, we feel like we should uh, uh, impeach Bush and build a wall around Texas so he can't return to Texas. You know? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I, you know, what's really messed up now is that Bush seems very kind of, you know, okay compared to what we have now i mean just mm. amazingly frightening and uh, it's heartbreaking you know um i can't personally help watching you know these mass shootings especially the one in el paso which yeah. is so close to home and and a lot of my friends live in el paso i have a lot of friends in dayton Dayton was the first place that rank and file ever played. We had a, there was a, a group of anarchists that we used to hang out with in Dayton all through my solo career, everything, you know? So, you know, both of those towns mean a lot to me and especially El Paso, because it's a perfect example of how the border is insignificant and in how two cities and you know, enact with each other. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, El Paso is much Mexico as Juarez is El Paso, you know. Mm. And it's a common daily thing. It's, it's, I think it's now, that at one point, it was the safest city in America in which that idiot Trump tries to take credit for by building this ridiculous wall. And, um, and, you know, now it's like, I think, the second, second safest city. I don't know what's going to happen now after this. But, mm. you know, the point is, is that like people there are very sweet, very kind. There's great food, uh, great clubs to play and, and just great people. And, you know, for me as a, uh, a Chicano to play El Paso was always a great honor. It was like San Antonio. Same thing, because. You get all these Chicano kids, Mexicano kids who come to possibly see rock and roll played by other Chicanos. That's not, you know, we're not a folkloric group. We're not recreating their parents' music. We're playing rock and roll music, you know, and they take a real interest in that. And I've, you know, I've been told so many times by these kids that it was uh, 
inspiring to them to see, you know. So that means a lot, you know. So with with this tragedy, it's just really hard to take. It's so sad, you know. And uh, until we, we, I think the damage that the Republican Party and Trump have done to our country is so deep, it's going to take a long time for us to get past it, you know. Yeah, it's a very, you know, I get up every day and uh, get up, get dressed, go out to my office, fire up the computer, go to YouTube, look at Colbert, look at John Oliver, look at Samantha B, like all of the people that I would, of course, pay attention to. Um, and I, I know far too much about American politics and what's going on. I should not care as much as I do. But obviously what happens there is an impact on us here in Canada. And there's, you know, there's a there's a tendency to sort of, you know, um, claim that, oh, we have our shit together up here. You know, we have our health care. We have all of this stuff and we don't have these problems that you have in the States, uh, which is bullshit. You know, we have our share of assholes just like every other country does. And, you know, it's. We have the Conservative Party here who like to like to mimic the Republican Party um, yeah. in the states. You know, they like to they like to use attack ads, for instance. You know, which as Canadians just abhor that kind of stuff. You know, why can't you? Why, right. why do you have right. to shit on somebody? Why can't you say anything? But the way technology is working these days, you know, the deep dive into the Cambridge Analytics and all of that kind of stuff, it it does frightened me actually because the united states i always thought of as our benevolent older brother which you know look after us and that kind of thing um and it it does frighten me i really honestly have no clue um why this gun culture is what it is why people are snapping uh but people are snapping people are broken you know like there's something desperately wrong at the at the bottom of all of this and uh, I really have no idea how to fix it. I'm just sort of happy that I'm at least, you know, arm's reach away from it all. I can't imagine what it'd be like for you. When I heard about the shooting in El Paso, I immediately thought of you. And think of like, what yeah. a senseless, ridiculous, stupid thing. Um, you, know, you know, when Trump was elected, it was a shock. I mean, just a complete, utter wrenching shock, you know. Mm-hmm. My daughter called me that morning crying, you know. Uh, what's going to happen? Uh, are people going to hate me at school? Blah, blah, blah. You know, am I safe? Uh, we went on tour immediately after he got elected. And Nancy and I, you know, you know Nancy. She's yeah. blonde, beautiful young girl and lady. And uh, uh, we sensed that we had to be different, that we had to be a little more aware. You know, and now it's become even more intense. You know, mm. people talk to me. You know, it's weird. I live out in the country, which is probably Trump country, no doubt, out here, right? Yeah. Austin's a very, very isolated oasis of blue and a, and a deep, deep sea of red surrounding it, right? Mm. So, you know, people, I mean, you know, I've had this all my life, but it's it's interesting that now, as a grown man, 68-year-old man who's been around the world and, and played music for people, I, I, I've done benefits for so many people, so many people helped me. I've tried to return that kind of uh, love and, and compassion. 
Um, and, you know, people now uh, aren't sure if I speak English sometimes. They, don't, they talk to me in the horrible, broken Spanish. And uh, they talk to me like I'm, I'm, I'm a migrant worker. They really do. And that, that, my father was a migrant worker. I'm not ashamed of that. But what I'm saying is that they have no idea. And yet they're judging me merely, merely, which I never felt in a long time, um, you know, based on my color of my skin and my nationality, you know. So it's a very different world out here in America. Um, the fear that you can't go anywhere. I, I mean, I wish I could tell my kids don't go to movies, but or don't go to these concerts or don't go to shopping malls, you know. I mean, where can we go where we're safe? Yeah. It doesn't seem like such a place exists anymore, you know. This is one of those places. <laughs> Oh, I know. Halifax, it is. It you is. know, but, you know, it's, it's a reasonable place. Uh, you are I'm the so, first. I'm sorry that I'm talking about this so much, but it's been, no, you know, it's I'm been. 100% with you, man. It's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a freak show for us. Yeah. Um, and I, and I understand why everybody's concerned. Um, and like I said, we've got tons of problems up here. It's not like Canadians don't have a lot of these issues. We do. But you were one of those people that, um, you know, I approached through a mutual friend yeah. uh, to see if we could get you up to Halifax to play this festival. Um, and you were one of the first people that I was thinking of, God, it'd be so great if he could come. And you actually said yes, yeah. which it surprises me a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's easy to say, no, I'm not going there. The money's not good enough. It's a long way away. What do you mean you want me to play with a bunch of guys I've never met before? <laughs> you know, but you were so open to the idea. Um, I want to get your impressions, you know, just off the top, when you, when you were asked about it, what you thought, and then when you got here, what you thought, and what was your experience like? Well, you know, uh when you first asked me, I mean, I thought it was a wonderful idea because I love the idea of collaboration. I've always loved collaboration. And like I told you, my orchestra was improvisational. Mm. So there was no fear that, you know, you get to a certain point, Mike, where, where and I'm sure you feel the same way about your, 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 your uh, talent, you know, where you become very confident that you can make something out of whatever it is they hand you, you know. If they hand me a shovel and a hammer, I know I could do something with it, you know? <laughs> if they hand me a guitar and a violin player and a bunch of kids who are just learning, I know that I can make something out of it, you yeah. know? So I was, there was, that fear wasn't there. I knew that there was great musicians. There's always been such great musicians throughout Canada. And I knew your history, so I figured this isn't bullshit. You know, this guy knows what he's doing. And, and then when I saw that Willie was going to be there and, uh, uh, I remember, uh, and, uh, Robin Hitchcock was there and Tom Wilson was there, I believe that, that time. Yeah. And, uh, David Lowry yeah. too, I think. Yeah. It was so good, man. Was so great. David Lowry came the day after we left, I think, or, or something like that. Uh, but, right. But I, yeah, but I remember, um, I saw Willie right away at the hotel when they dropped me off and you dropped me off. I think at the hotel, mm -hmm. uh, someone dropped me off at the hotel. I think it was your partner and, um, and Willie right away. I said, Hey, so Willie, I think Willie had done it before. Yeah. So he was just going, man, this is great. It's great. And it'll be fine. And then when I played with that band, that band was, 
super cool, man. <laughs> and everybody was just so happy. And, and they did their homework. They're great musicians. I mean, that band was as good as any band I'd ever played with. So, you know, <laughs> there was no fear at all. And then the workshop with Robin was magical. Right. That was unbelievable. I mean, and to hang out with Tom, I love Tom a lot. I think he's one of the great, you know, uh, undiscovered Canadian artists. You know, mm. he's really an amazing artist. Um, so all of that. It just turned out to be, and then the party, and there's a surfer, and you know, uh, you know, it's all this stuff. And Robin's band was so good, and he's doing Brian Eno's songs, and it's like it was perfect, man. I, you know, I I, I left uh, hoping that you'd ask me again. Honestly, I, I really, you know, couldn't wait to get back there. And then when, of course, when Nancy and I were married. Uh, you know, she's a rank and, and, and so she's always wanted to go there because her father tells her that, you know, there might be relatives there or whatnot. So yeah. it's going to be really beautiful. Yeah. So I'm really excited. Well, Very that's excited. one of the things that I always hoped, you know, for this little <laughs> festival idea that we had is that, first of all, people would make, you know, friendships that, yeah. that they wouldn't have otherwise made or connections and that people would want to come back. That's kind of what I've always dreamt of, you know, it'll be, you know, people will come back. David Lowry has been back a couple of times actually playing yeah. gigs. Oh, has uh, he? And so. he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's, uh, and, he, and he wants to do it again. I think he wants to bring Johnny Hickman with him and do it as a duo or something. Oh, um, wow. That'd be awesome. But man. this time around, you know, it's going to be different for you in the sense that, you know, last time you were here, I don't even think the bands got paid in those days. I think, you know, they're just doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. Um, I believe but so. Now, but now we're throwing some money at the bands, nowhere near what it's worth. Uh, we've now got actual full rehearsals uh, in Joel Plaskett's studio. So, and in your case, pretty much the whole band, I think, is coming back. So oh, cool. Great. It'll be, like, it'll be like a reunion of sorts. Wonderful. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, I look forward to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm so happy that you're bringing Nancy because, you know, we do have Rankins here and they're all musical. <laughs> like every last every last one of them, the Rankin family is famous yeah. here for their stuff, you know. Um, and the weather's here has been spectacularly good. I'm crossing my fingers it's going to remain the same for the rest of the month. But, you know, it'll be it'll be awesome. And, and uh, when we were discussing... Uh, because it was our 10th anniversary year, we thought, well, we should bring somebody back. We should bring one artist back. And it was not, you know, it was pretty much a unanimous decision that oh, you should goodness. be the one to come back. Well, thank you. Right. I'm, I'm very excited and honored to be doing it, believe me. Uh, it was nothing but, you know, the best of experiences, that, that trip. And and I'm sure it'll be even better this time now. You know, it's the anniversary and everything. It's going to be great, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I left for. Do you still have your clubhouse? My, my garage? Yes. Yeah, that little clubhouse. Yeah. yeah, yeah, my tiki lounge garage. I'm sure we can. I uh, love that place. I'm sure we can hang it's out so there. Good. Oh yeah, and um, speaking of the tiki, you know, pot's legal up here, man. That's so civilized. You man. can walk so into happy. a store yeah. and just buy it. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's like touring the West Coast here, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. So yeah, that's even more incentive to get out there. So yeah, that's wonderful. Well, 
Um, Matthew Sweet was very um, was very pumped when I was saying that you thought that you might have played with him in Chapel Hill. That, that, yeah. that made him very that made him laugh, and, and uh, <laughs> he was very happy to hear that. Um, so we can't like I get, the weekend's going to be on me. I know it in a heartbeat, and then it'll be over, and I'll be sad. But uh, uh, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me, Alejandro, and I really cannot wait to see you. Oh, great. And say hello to everybody, Megan. Thank her for everything, too. I will and, do that. Uh, yeah. And we'll uh, see you soon. Okay, bud. Thanks, man. Have a great okay. day. Ciao. That's our show for today. Thanks to our friend Alejandro Escovedo for joining us from Texas. Also, thanks to Joel Plaskin for the use of our theme music, Village Sound, and to you, the music fan, for giving it a listen. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 